Well, good evening. It's just so encouraging to see so many supporters and graduates of the EU ministry here tonight to help us mark and give great thanks to God for 30 years of EU's annual conference. Like annual conference back in 1990, this week we've been looking at the wonderful Christian truth of justification, that we are justified by God's grace in Jesus Christ through faith. Annual conference was a highlight moment for me as an EU student and I was blessed to be at that same EU annual conference in 1990 as Kaz and Mark when Rob Forsyth presented the talks. And as anyone who knows Rob Forsyth and has sat under his teaching can testify, Rob had a particular gift, a particular gift I think, for distilling and communicating theology. And I'm completely honest and transparent. In preparing the talks for this week, I borrowed freely from the outlines that Rob Forsyth produced in the couple of times that he tackled this topic. And tonight, as we look at justification through faith, that's no exception. I was thinking about what that's like, and I've got an example for you. Let's put it up on the screen for you. Um, I want you to think of what we're doing as sort of like Super Smash Bros. Now, the original Super Smash Bros came out in the 1990s for the Nintendo 64, a classic gaming console. Uh, in fact, uh, just in case you've never actually seen it in operation, that, that cartridge and the console are not sort of at the same scale. Otherwise, you might, <laughs> might sort of work out how did we get the cartridge inside that console. It was very tricky. But then fans will know that last year, the fifth iteration of Super Smash Bros. was released, Super Smash Ultimate. Uh, and the beauty of this latest edition is that all the classic stuff is still there. It's still Super Smash Bros. In fact, a feature of the game is that every character from all the earlier editions is there inside the game. But now it's updated to a new platform with a whole bunch of extra bits thrown in as well. Well, that, this talk is like that. <laughs> All the classic stuff is there with a whole bunch of extra bits. Uh, so much so, and in consideration of those who've travelled to be with us tonight, I'm going to play fast and loose with the outline that's in your books. And in several sections, I've put in various helpful quotes that I'm going to let you take home and read and ponder, that you can discuss them maybe tomorrow in your review groups if you're a student here at Ancon. Some of it I might even decide to do a bit later in the week. I'm still trying to work that out. I might do that. Or you can ask me about it at question time. We've got lots of options. There's so many wonderful truths to think about from God. We're just going to get into it. So we're starting on page 31, or if you've got the special handout as a guest tonight, it's on page 2. This week we've been looking at justification, God's free gift of grace grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus, where unrighteous sinners like you, like me, are declared wonderfully righteous by God. The question we come to tonight is who? Who receives this free gift of righteousness from God? Are all sinners justified? Are just a few? If only some, which ones? And to answer that question, we're going to start with Romans 3, at the top of page 31, or page 2 in the handout. Paul writes, But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who... Well, what should we put in the blank? Who should God justify? Those who are on the right side of the moral bell curve? Those who got into Sydney Uni, so they're super smart. Maybe those who are rich and can afford it. Who should God justify? Well, what Paul writes is, it's for all who believe, for all who have faith. Faith is what connects us to God's great work of justification. Justification is by God's grace, 
It's in Jesus Christ and it comes through faith. Faith is the instrument of justification, the means God uses to connect us to his great work of justification in Jesus. Now, the justification is through faith. That's a source of great joy and freedom, especially for those who are troubled by a lack of assurance. Martin Luther, the instrumental Protestant reformer, is a good example his discovery that justification from God was through faith led to a massive transformation in the way he understood not just his own salvation, it changed how he thought about God. Have a look at what he wrote about that experience at the bottom of page 31, bottom of page 2. He said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God or the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through faith and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. That justification is through faith and not through any other means is immensely freeing. That's what we're digging into tonight. So let's look at Romans chapter 4, page 32 or page 3, and the example of Abraham. Paul goes to Abraham as the example of justification by faith alone. I've broken the chapter down into sections so you can follow along the case that Paul makes. hope that makes it a bit easier for you. We start with the first three verses, that we're justified through faith alone, not from works. Look at what Paul says. He says, What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So here's the point. Justification is through faith alone, not from works. Notice verse 2. If Abraham had been justified by works, then maybe he would have had something to boast about, but not in front of God. Why not? Because, verse 3, God justified Abraham on the basis of Abraham's faith not from any of the works that Abraham might have done. See, works can never gain you a righteous standing in front of God. It's faith alone that is reckoned as righteousness. It doesn't matter how much you live a good life, doesn't matter how much you treat other people with dignity or save water or recycle, because God is looking for faith. All the works in the world without faith will never gain you a righteous standing in front of God because faith alone is reckoned as righteousness by God. But why is justification by faith alone? Why not by works? It's because through faith alone preserves grace. Pick it up at Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Now to one who works... Wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. 
See there in verse 4? Paul says that if justification is through works, then what you get, it's no longer a gift. It becomes wages that you just owed. But when Abraham is justified by God, a man, according to verse 5, without works, then clearly it must be gracious. It's undeserved. He'd done nothing to merit it. So justification must be by faith alone, or else justification ceases to be a gift of grace. And there's another reason that justification is by faith alone. Verses 9 to 15. Through faith alone means that it's now open to all, not just the Jews. This time we'll pick it up at verse 9. Is this blessedness, that is being justified apart from works, is this blessedness then pronounced only on the circumcised, the Jews, or also on the uncircumcised, the Gentiles? We say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. And you can read the details for yourself in Genesis 15 and 17. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the ancestor of all who believe without being circumcised and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them and likewise the ancestor of the circumcised who are not only circumcised but who also follow the example of faith that our ancestor Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul points out that Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised which later was to become a key mark of the Jewish people. So Abraham is more than just the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham is the father of all who believe, whether or not they've been circumcised. Since Abraham has been both an uncircumcised believer and he's been a circumcised believer. He's the father of everyone who believes. So you can see that there on the diagram. Paul's argument is that the promise came before the law and so righteousness can't be restricted to those who had the law since Abraham himself was justified by God through his faith, not through circumcision or law obedience. So that we're justified by faith alone, that means that justification is now open to all, to Jew and to Gentile. Paul then summarises what he said in verse 16 and 17. He says, For this reason, justification depends on faith, in order that, first, the promise may rest on grace, and second be guaranteed to all of Abraham's descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of us all, as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. Okay, so let's pause there just for an aside. This truth about God, that we are justified through faith alone, was one of the key rediscoveries of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. I say rediscovery because it was not a new truth that we're justified through faith alone, it was there in the New Testament, as we've just seen. And as Paul has pointed out in this chapter, it was actually there in the Old Testament as well. But this truth had largely got lost in Roman Catholic teaching and practice. And it was through Martin Luther and John Calvin and other key reformers that these crucial truths from God about salvation were rediscovered in the Scriptures and given the prominence and clarity that the scriptures themselves reveal. So you can see there on the bottom of page 33 or page 4, the five solas or alones that came to characterize the insights of the Protestant Reformation into our salvation. Salvation is through faith alone, it's by grace alone, it's in Christ alone, it's to God's glory alone, and it's according to the Scriptures alone. Now, it's not that the Roman Catholic Church at the time did not teach about faith or grace or Christ in the Bible. It's the alone, the solas, that distinguished the biblical insights of the Reformers. Each of the alones protects an aspect of our salvation from false alternatives. And the prepositions are key in identifying which part of the salvation story we're talking about. Now, I've tried to represent it here on a diagram for you, so we'll put it up on the screen. 
We are saved through faith alone. We're saved through faith alone, not through any works that we do. We're saved, secondly, by God's grace alone, not on the basis of any internal righteousness that we might have, any internal merit. We're saved in Christ alone and not in any other mediator. Our salvation is according to the Scriptures alone and not according to the authority of the church or any other human institution. And it's all to the glory of God alone and not for the glory of ourselves or for the glory of the church. I'll leave that on screen for a moment if you want to sketch that down to discuss it tomorrow, of how those different aspects all fit in together. That's, I take it, the biblical picture of how salvation, how justification works. You are justified by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, according to the Scriptures alone, to God's glory alone. Uh, Why we leave that on the screen? Last night we spent some time hearing about the need for Bible translation around the world. And you might not realise it, but Martin Luther was himself a Bible translator, amongst other things. He translated the Bible into German, which didn't exist in German at the time. And he did it so that people could read and hear God's Word in their heart language. And when he translated Romans chapter 3, verse 28, he translated, as you can see there in your book, in the diagram. We hold that the human will be justified without the works of the law, but only by faith. That word only, or sola, caused quite a stir. He was claiming that God's word said justification was by faith alone, faith without works. Now, in answer to the controversy that then flared up, he wrote um, an open letter on translating which you can download on the internet and read, and it actually makes for quite a fun read. Uh, And in it, he defends his translation. And this is what he said. He acknowledges that. He says, the letters S-O-L-A, sola, are not there in Greek or Latin. And these knotheads, that is critics, stare at these letters like cows at a new gate. Now, for you city dwellers, have you ever seen see, cows stare at things that are different in their paddock? They sort of stare at it and just chew the cud and just look at it. What is this new thing? And they just, well, his critics stare, he says, at, at these letters, solar, like cows at a new gate. While at the same time, he says, they do not recognize that it conveys the sense of the text. If the translation is to be clear and accurate, it belongs there. In his translation, he was drawing us back to the meaning of God's word in that passage. We are justified through faith alone, not by works. So, what then does faith look like? Well, Paul moves on to reflect on the nature of Abraham's faith. What does real justifying faith in God look like? Again, Abraham is the model. We'll pick it up from verse 17. As it is written, I have made you, Abraham, the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations according to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness, literally the deadness, of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. So verse 21 there, that's the heart of real faith, being fully convinced that God is able to do what he's promised. Christian faith, justifying faith, is trust in the promises of God. 
God promised Abraham that he was going to be the father of many nations, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now that sounds good. Slight problem, Abraham was basically 100 years old. And Sarah, his wife, was nearly 90 and had never been able to have kids. You'd have to say at that point, if you were Abraham, that the odds seem pretty stacked against you. Wouldn't you? Just to help you understand it, here's a picture. Here's a picture of a 100-year-old man. And here's a picture of a 90-year-old woman. Now, what chance, what chance do you think if these two guys got together <laughs> is of them having as many descendants as the stars in the sky? This was Abraham's situation. And yet, verse 19, we read that Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered the deadness of his body or the deadness of Sarah's womb, but was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That's faith. That's trust in the Word of God. And Paul makes the application for us as we read on then in verse 23. He says, Now the words it was reckoned to him were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. Righteousness will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. A few reflections then on how is our faith the same as Abraham's? Three ways. First, we put our faith in the same God who gives life to the dead. He gave life to Abraham's good as dead body. He gave life to Sarah's dead womb. And he gave life to Jesus' dead body, raising him who died for our sins. This is the same God that we trust, who gives life to the dead, including to us. Same God. Second, like Abraham, we put our faith in God despite trying circumstances. Verse, back in verse 12, Paul talked about those who follow the example of faith, of Abraham. Literally, he calls them those who walk in the footsteps, the footprints of Abraham's faith. I think that's a beautiful image. To walk the life of faith that Abraham walked. To walk in those same footprints of Abraham's faith. It's beautiful, but it's a challenge. Abraham's faith in God was full on. Despite his extreme situation, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he'd promised. Now, maybe that resonates a bit for you. Because maybe you're facing a, a set of trying circumstances at the moment. Well, follow Abraham's example. Walk in the footprints of his faith. When he considered all those factors arrayed against him, he did not weaken in faith. He kept trusting God's promise. You do the same. You might not be in trying circumstances now. But what's it going to be in 15 years? In 30 years? In 50 years? I'm saying when the trying circumstances come, keep walking in the footprints of Abraham's faith, trust in God's promise. And the third way that our faith is the same to Abraham is God responds to our faith the same way he responds to Abraham's faith. Our faith in God will be reckoned as righteousness. So I want to stop and then think a bit more about faith. Faith is much misunderstood and a much maligned word. The world says... Faith is irrational and blind. It's a belief or a subscription to a subjective worldview or a set of propositions that's ridiculous. So, for example, writing more than 90 years ago, US journalist Henry Lewis Menchin wrote, Faith may be defined briefly as an illogical belief in the occurrence of the improbable. 
One full of faith is simply one who has lost or never had the capacity for clear and realistic thought. Such a one is not a mere ass. One is actually ill. And that same view of faith is perpetuated today. According to my friends at urbandictionary.com, where I like to go for all my information, (laughs) faith is an insubstantial or irrational belief. Or alternatively, an irrational belief in something despite all evidence to the contrary. To have faith is foolish. To be mentally ill. It's the victory of the irrational and the illogical and it's opposed to evidence. Now, in light of that sort of assault on faith, we want to be clear on what then we mean by faith. Three simple points about faith. First, faith just means trust. And we all have faith because we all trust all sorts of things. You have faith in your senses, you trust them. You take out the milk in the morning, you smell the milk is off, you throw it out. Or you give it to your sibling. I don't know, what do you have faith in your set. You, you have faith in traffic lights. You trust that when your light is green, that the light showing the traffic coming across you is red. Have you ever stopped to check? Well, you, you might now cause many traffic accidents if you do, but if it's green, you, you trust that, yes, it's safe to go ahead. As, and for that matter, you've got faith in the other drivers too, haven't you? Since you trust that when they see that red traffic light, they will actually know it means stop and that they will actually stop and so that you don't end up in a great accident in the middle of the road. It takes a lot of faith to drive on Sydney roads. <laughs> You're trusting all sorts of things, right? Faith is just trust. It's not a big deal. Faith in itself is not anything very special. What distinguishes different sorts of faith is its object. What or who is your faith in? Second thing then to say about faith is that this sort of personal trust, it's not blind, it's not irrational. When you trust something or someone, you do that based on the evidence. Now that evidence might be previous experience or it might be the testimony of others. So-and-so's a good guy, you can trust him, okay. Faith is not blind, it's not irrational. It's trust based on different sorts of evidence. And the third thing then to say about faith is that Christian faith is not about a worldview or a culture or a set of propositions. Christian faith is trust in a person, a living human being, the Lord Jesus Christ, fully human, fully God. And it's the nature of that sort of trust in the Lord Jesus that we're, we're digging into a little bit tonight. Now, let me share with you a curious observation Faith, especially Christian faith, might often get ridiculed by those around us. But at the same time, people are still desperately searching for something to believe in. For something to trust in. Have you noticed that? And sometimes it's the same person ridiculing faith who's also searching for something, for someone to trust. We're going to listen to a song. And listen to a song by John Butler uh, from the John Butler Trio, who's an example. I think this is a good example of that very thing. John Butler, if you don't know, he's an Australian artist. He's not a not a Christian. He released this song last year. It's called Faith. Going to have a listen. The words are going to be coming up on the screen. I just point make one explanatory comment. Um, early on in the song, he then starts talking about how ridiculous he thinks faith is. And he does it by saying, it's like all these other ridiculous things that you don't believe. You know, that Elvis Presley is still alive, or that if you dig through the earth, you always end up in China, or that, um, or that um, you know, Rumpelstiltskin who hid all his gold. He says, if you believe in, in, it's like believing those things. That might explain a little part of the song. But let's listen to John Butler, Faith.
just is looking for a hand I've got seed that I must sow Great mystery up in the sky Looking down upon me with your millions of eyes Come on, there are things I need to know Cause I dance with religion I try to make friends with those seven days I cannot make amends with them Watch the kingdoms crumble as they grow Well, I'm just looking for some faith To get me through tomorrow With just a little grace in this so crazy world we live Sometimes it's like a life raft And other times it looks like a sieve Don't ask me why the picks and I got the spades I got some dynamite I even brought grenades come on let's dig ourselves into a great big hole dig deep enough maybe we'll reach Beijing when we arrive I'll hit the streets and I'll ask for the king taking care of business on the south side so I've been
Don Butler is very upfront about it. He's looking for something to believe in, something that will get him through tomorrow with just a little grace. He wants peace of mind. He wants an anchor when life comes tumbling down. And then there's that whole last section of the song where he says he's on his knees crying, tell me I'm not alone. Do you reckon he's alone in feeling these things? Do you reckon there's other people at uni? Do you reckon there's other people in your workplace, in your suburb, in those quiet moments when the bravado is gone, would they resonate with John's words? Because if God's made us for a relationship with himself, then it shouldn't be surprising at the longing that we find that people want to believe in someone. They want, they want someone to trust and in the gospel of Jesus, the one true living God has given the answer for John Butler's searching. The firm anchor for his soul. Peace for his tangled knots inside. The source of grace to get through tomorrow. And each day after that, the assurance that he's not alone. I am with you always, said Jesus, to the very end of the age. That faith that our society so quickly derides or ridicules, it's actually the key missing piece in their life. A personal trust in Jesus is the God-given means to all the deepest longings of their heart for joy and security and fellowship and peace. The first object of the EU is basically unchanged over the last 89 years, to present students with the Christian gospel and lead them to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great goal to have here in the EU. But it's not particularly limited in its appropriateness just to uni students. It's what we all want for those around us, knowing as we do God's great grace to us in the Lord Jesus. We want to see the people we know come to a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that they might be justified, have peace with God and no condemnation. So to say at this point, do keep praying for those around you at work or at uni. Pray the Lord would point you to those like John Butler who are looking for some faith. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus with them. I know that's more tricky to do in the workplace than it is at uni. But their need is the same. Our God is the same. And he can use us just the same. Do you believe the Lord would use you to lead people that you know to personal faith in the Lord Jesus? Of course he can do that. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That's not outside the power or the compassion of our God. So I just want to encourage you to commit it to God in prayer. Now there's a whole lot of helpful questions we can explore in understanding faith in Jesus through which we are justified. Um, first of all, what faith does. Faith unites us to Jesus in the Spirit. Have a look at the bottom of page 35 or page 6 of your outline. Robert Lethem is a Christian theologian. He puts it like this, which I think helpfully summarizes it. He says, Union with Christ is in fact the foundation of all the blessings of salvation. Justification, sanctification, adoption and glorification are all received through our being united to Christ. And you can see there in the diagram we're united to Jesus in the Spirit through faith. That's how we receive all of Christ's benefits, including justification, by being united to Christ through faith. It's as though Jesus has sort of reached down and scooped us up along with everybody else who has faith in him and he's put us all in his backpack. So now whatever is true of Jesus, that's true of us as well. Because by faith we're now united with Jesus, sitting in his backpack, you're now in Christ through faith. And so you enjoy all of his blessings, including the blessing of justification. 
So faith unites me to Jesus, but how much faith is enough? Jump ahead to halfway down page 37 or page 8. Halfway down page 37 or page 8. How much faith is enough? Given the crucial role that faith plays in uniting us to Jesus, how much faith is enough? That's a very common question. The answer is, it's not the intensity or strength of our faith that matters. But it's the object or focus of our faith, namely Jesus himself, that makes the difference. You can see there on your page, Alistair McGrath says, the efficacy of faith, that is its ability to achieve what it's meant to achieve, does not rest upon the intensity with which we believe, but in the reliability of the one in whom we believe. It's not the greatness of our faith, he says, but the greatness of God which counts. That's good news, isn't it? Because do you feel yourself weak in faith at times? It's not about the strength of your faith. It's about that you're trusting in Jesus. He's strong. Martin Luther has a lovely illustration there at the bottom of page 37 or page 8. He says, even if my faith is weak, I still have exactly the same treasure and the same Christ as others. There is no difference. He says, it's like two people each of whom owns a hundred guldens, which are gold coins. One may carry their hundred gold coins around in a paper sack, the other in an iron chest. But despite these differences, they both own the same treasure. Thus the Christ who you and I own is one and the same, irrespective of the strength or weakness of your faith or mine. See, this is the miracle of faith. Whether yours is a paper sack faith or an iron chest faith, your faith unites us to the same mighty Lord Jesus Christ. Such that even through my weak and troubled faith, I have in Jesus Christ justification from God. But what about my doubts? Well, I'll leave you to read John Calvin's thoughts on doubt at the top of page 38 or page 9. Let's jump to section 5, halfway down page 38, page 9. See, in wrapping our heads around justification through faith alone, the spanner that's thrown in the works is that the Bible also says that faith alone is useless. Listen to what James says in James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messages and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. So what's James saying? Look at verse 24. A person is justified by works, he says, and not faith alone. Isn't that the exact opposite of what we've just been reading in Romans chapter 4 about Abraham? What's going on here? Well, first of all, note, James is not saying 
we're justified by works and faith is irrelevant. James is saying we're not justified by faith alone, in isolation, faith without any works. For James, you have to have works for your faith to be legit. Faith without works, he says, is dead. Or to put it another way, and I hope this sort of might clear up some confusion, genuine faith always shows itself in works. Paul makes the same point, actually, just in different language. Have a look in Galatians 5, 6 there. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. It's not faith isolated from all possible action. It's faith working itself out through love, which is exactly what James was talking about. So we need to get some greater clarity on this. What kind of faith, then, is it that justifies you? Well, we can say a couple of things. First of all, faith must acknowledge Jesus as Christ and Lord. The faith that saves is a faith that acknowledges Jesus as Christ and Lord. Look at what Paul says in Romans 10. Jump in at verse 9. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says no one who believes in him will be put to shame. So when Paul talks about the word being on your lips and in your heart, he's talking about a genuine, personal, whole person response that acknowledges with your head and in your heart that Jesus is indeed the risen Lord, your Lord. But in light of the other passages we've read above, we can put some greater shape onto this, what this faith actually looks like that confesses Jesus really is my Lord. From James, we know that if this is going to be genuine faith, then it must be more than just an intellectual assent, what I've called demon faith. Because James said, even the demons believe and shudder. And if you read through the gospel accounts, you'll see that James is right. Whilst many of the people who saw Jesus face to face weren't really sure who he was, The demons knew exactly who he was and they knew what he was capable of. Now that doesn't mean that they're saved or justified by God. Intellectual acknowledgement, intellectual assent is not enough for justifying faith. That only gets you to demon faith. That's not enough. Genuine faith also has to be more than just doing good things which I call Lord, Lord faith. See, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says there are many who do all sorts of good things in his name. Even, he says, prophesying, casting out demons in Jesus' name, doing miracles in Jesus' name. And we could add, who lead Bible studies in Jesus' name, who give Bible talks in Jesus' name, who serve as church wardens in Jesus' name, who are parish councillors in Jesus' name, who are youth group leaders in Jesus' name, but of whom he says, I never knew you, go away from me, you evildoers. What Jesus wants, see, is heart commitment, personal relationship. That's what genuine faith entails. It's a commitment of the heart, humbly, in relationship with Jesus, your Lord. It's not just involvement with the Christian community. It's not just doing Christian things. It's not just doing ministry. It's not just a commitment to the institution of the church. Finally, genuine faith has to be more than just trust Jesus for my salvation which is the dead, no works faith that James was talking about. A faith that trusts Jesus for salvation but doesn't show any works, James says that's a dead faith. It doesn't save. I'm going to try and give you an example to show what I think genuine faith looks like. So sit back, I'm going to tell you a story. 
Um, it starts like this. You need to go somewhere. A friend says, you should catch an Uber. Your response is, I do believe that an Uber would get me where I need to go. <laughs> but you don't do anything about it. No action. See, that's intellectual assent. But notice it has no trust. Real faith has trust. If you say, look, I've downloaded the app. I've signed up. I've even booked the Uber. Great. And then when the Uber shows up, uh, actually, I'm not going to get in the car. Again, it's a failure of trust, isn't it, at that point? That's Lord, Lord faith. I've done all these good things, but there's no personal commitment. And without personal trust, it's not real faith. Or maybe the Uber shows up and you get in. And the driver says, look, I can see from your booking where you want to go. But I really think it would be better if we went to this other destination instead. Yeah, I know, you jump out of the car straight away, right? But, yeah, because how do you respond? You go, I don't think so. See, you trust the Uber driver, but only to the extent that you can control where you're going. Now, that's entirely appropriate for an Uber driver. But that's not the sort of trust that we have in the Lord Jesus. We don't trust Jesus only for our salvation. If he really is Lord, if that's what we believe in our hearts, then we trust him in everything. See, there's a way in which you can try and trust Jesus for your justification and not trust him for anything else. It's like saying, well, Jesus, here's the deal. You look after what I can't control. Yes, my justification, the weather, my exam results, the stock market, my investments. Oh, look, I'll look after the rest. Thank you very much. We try to retain control. I'll decide what to do with my finances. Jesus, you have some very interesting ideas. I'll grant you that about money. But they're a bit out there, you know. Let me look after the investments and super. And relationships. Look, I know you've got ideas, Jesus, on how I should relate to people outside of marriage. But, you know, I know what I'm doing. We're being careful. We're not hurting anyone. And we're sort of into it now. So, you know. See, when we talk about trusting Jesus, we, we mean more than just trusting him for the things I can't control. We mean more than just trusting him for the things I choose to trust him for. If he's Lord, then we trust him in everything, for everything. So you're standing there waiting for your Uber. It arrives. You get in. And it's Jesus driving your Uber. Don't ask me how you know. You just know. <laughs> and he says to you, I can see where you've booked to go, but I really think it would be better if we went this other place instead. What are you going to say? Well, actually, the question is, what do you say? See, because every single day, you get in Jesus' Uber. Every day you do it. And when he says, I can see where you want to go, I think it would be better if we go here instead. What do you say? Will you entrust yourself to him? Will you give up the control? Will you put your faith in him? Yes, for your relationships. For God's money that he's given to you to steward for him. For your life decisions, big and small. What do you say? Now, you might put your faith in him poorly at times. We all do. 
Sometimes when he says, actually, I think we should go over here, you might open the door and leap out. (laughs) But who is calling the shots in your life? Or are you saying to Jesus, I don't think so. That's not genuine faith. So, summary. The faith which alone justifies is never alone. Genuine faith in Jesus always shows itself in a faith-filled life. Martin Luther again, top of page 40 or page 11. Faith, he says, is a living and unshakable confidence, a belief in the grace of God so assured that we would die a thousand deaths for its sake. This kind of confidence in God's grace, this sort of knowledge of it, makes us high-spirited and eager in our relation with God and all humankind. That's what the Holy Spirit affects through faith. Hence the person of faith, without being driven, willingly and gladly seeks to do good to everyone, to serve everyone, to suffer all kinds of hardships for the sake of the love and the glory of God, who's shown us such grace. It is impossible indeed to separate works from faith just as it is impossible to separate heat and light from fire. So conclusion. Let's be people of faith. Have a look at Paul's resolve there towards the bottom of page 40, page 11 from Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, he says, and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul knows the love of Jesus for him in the cross. And he knows his old self died with Jesus. And now Jesus is living in him. And so he says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Let's be people of genuine faith. Trust Jesus and his word and live it out each day, whether it's a good day or whether it's a rubbish day. Let's trust Jesus and show it, not just in our words, but in our deeds. Show it at home with the kids. Show it with the parents. Show it with the flatmates. Let's be people of genuine faith at work in the way we resist the culture of criticism and backstabbing in the way we seek to be a boss, even when we're under pressure, in the way we serve a boss when they're being unreasonable. Let's be people of faith in Jesus' word and promise. Let's trust Jesus in the scary times, the times when we're drowning in conflict or when we've been hit for six because life just has not turned out the way we'd hoped. Let's trust Jesus and his promise. When those opportunities come to do something risky for him, let's trust him in that moment. After all, he is with us always to the very ends of the age. No matter what the situation, let's echo that example. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Jesus, I will trust you. Trust you with my soul. Guilty, lost and helpless. You can make me whole. There is none in heaven or on earth like thee. Thou hast died for sinners. Therefore, Lord, you died for me. Jesus, I do trust thee. Trust without a doubt. Whosoever cometh, thou wilt not cast out. Faithful is thy promise. Precious is thy blood. These my soul's salvation. 
thou my Saviour God. Amen.